0: says some very kind things. Thank you, brother, for getting my attention. Brother Kevin normally says some very kind things, anyway, about everyone who comes to preach, and I don't think it's an exaggeration that we could probably heap on him tenfold of what he says about us. He is a precious soul, isn't he? And uh, I wanted to take time to thank the church and thank everyone who's labored this week realize we come to be a blessing to you through the preaching of the word but we find ourselves in the middle of a bunch of other laborers you know people who work to make this an oasis for us so that we might just be able to enjoy fellowship with one another and gather around the word i don't take that lightly i appreciate all the work that each one of you have done all the investment that has been made for the place to stay um, and all the rest i certainly appreciate all the kindness. Don't merit one ounce of it. And I'm thankful for all that you do. Take your Bible tonight, if you will, and turn over to John chapter number 3. John chapter number 3. Tonight we'll try to come to a very, I suppose, popular portion of Scripture. Most of you will be familiar with, uh, with this text in the early portion of John chapter number 3. I'm interested tonight in Nicodemus. Um, One of the beauties of the scriptures is that God could have sent down to humanity simply a rule book. Of course, there are some rules regulations in the word of God, and they're perfectly right. He could have left it like that, but by and large, when you read the scripture, you realize you're reading about people. Individuals. I think there's several reasons for it. One one reason why that's so is so that we can identify with it. We can see that God's revelation is not something that doesn't have anything to do with us. It's vitally intimate with us. And then we get to see truth live, don't we? It's not just some objective thing off in the distance that we can stand in awe of it, but we watch it live in the lives of people, people like us. It's so beautiful to watch God work in people's lives in the scriptures. It's beautiful to watch God work in people's lives now, isn't it? Make his truth effectual. Of course, we have an interview in John chapter number 3 between Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus. I want to begin by simply reading the text with relation to Nicodemus in John's gospel. There are, in fact, three texts in John's gospel that deal with Nicodemus. John chapter number 3 is the first one. Let me read here the first 16 verses of this chapter and then we'll look at a couple other texts. That way you won't have to be turning unless you just are pleased to do so. John chapter number 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just get right to the point, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Let's us know he's thinking like a carnal man, isn't he? He almost tries to take the truth of God and make it into an absurdity. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. I think part of the idea, at least in that text, is the wind. He says it, you can hear it, you can see its effectiveness, but there is an unseen power behind its it, isn't it? So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. They are brought along by an unseen power, aren't they? Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily I say unto thee, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. We might read this together just aloud if you'd like. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then uh, essentially about a year and a half later, Nicodemus reappears in John's Gospel in John chapter number 7. The religious leaders have sent officers to take Jesus of Nazareth, and bring him unto them. Of course, the officers return empty-handed. And they ask him, of course, why have you not brought him? In John chapter 7, verse 46, the officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? It's always a dangerous thing when you judge people's spiritual experience by your own, isn't it? Yes, it is. I just throw that out there to you, yeah. But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. I was thinking this afternoon, they don't they didn't realize that those who know the law are cursed too. Right? The cursed is he that continueth not in the things written in the law, to do them, right? Well, <laughs> I'll get to my text on where I'm hopefully I'll keep my comments relatively brief. Nicodemus, notice verse 15, Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And then essentially a year and a half later, in John chapter number. 19, Nicodemus reappears. John chapter number 19, verse 38 and following. John 19, verse 38, And after this Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. I don't know how much we'll get into each of these texts. There was a lot read. Obviously, we cannot deal with all of it in great particulars. But I'm interested tonight in trying to say a few things about the unexpected story of grace in a religious man, in Nicodemus. As is the case with a lot of John's gospel Many occasions John writes things other than what have been written in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, he's the only one of the Gospel writers to mention Nicodemus, but he does carry us through to bring some kind of conclusion, at least, to what the story of Nicodemus or story of grace in Nicodemus really is. The case of Nicodemus, when you come to him in this in this, this book of John, is rather unusual. In fact, the truth of the gospel of grace often proved a tremendous stumbling block to the religious leaders in Israel. Oftentimes, the humbling words of grace seemed to escape them. They had concepts of righteousness which were untrue. Concepts of their own goodness which were not sound. And therefore, when they heard gospel truth, it just seemed rather than to Light a fire in their hearts, so to speak. It seemed to rather turn them completely the opposite direction. Rarely do we find a religious leader who sincerely comes to the Lord Jesus without any impure motives. Rarely do we see one who comes without any inbuilt prejudices already in him. Nicodemus is a welcome exception to that rule, isn't he? He comes to the Lord Jesus by night. A man of the Pharisees, we are told here in chapter 3 and verse number 1. A ruler of the Jews. A master of Israel, Christ says in verse number 10. He proves to be that exception to the rule. Of course, he's not the only one, but obviously we realize there weren't a great deal of them. In fact, they make reference to that themselves in chapter number 7. That by far and away, they didn't think that any of the rulers of the Jews believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, any normal man would look at Nicodemus and the things that we know about him here in this text that are spoken of him in John chapter number three, and we would look at this man and think, he doesn't need anything. I mean, brother, he seems to be, he seems to have everything in order. He he is a man who is well educated, he is a master of Israel. Not only is he one that Knows the law of God himself, but evidently he is an instructor of others in spiritual things. A master of Israel, well educated. He is naturally privileged being born a Jew in that hour and being graced with all the spiritual advantages that the Jews had. He is a man who was religiously involved. A man of the Pharisees, we are told in chapter 3 and verse number 1, which Paul said was the straightest sect of the Jews. They had truth right, at least in some respects. He is a man who was greatly respected. He was a ruler of the Jews, a man who is socially exalted, a man who undoubtedly was morally unstained. And we would normally look at a man like that and think he doesn't need anything. What does he what What, what can this man possibly need? He needs grace, doesn't he? He needs grace in his heart and grace. In his life, saving grace he needs before this scene is over, I think he becomes at least to realize that much. Nicodemus in this text is about to learn that neither national privilege nor strict religious observances nor social esteem can take away the stain of sin that is inherent in every child of Adam. He is coming to learn truths that honestly to this point in time seem to have entirely escaped him. Nicodemus is a reminder to us all. In fact, in, in this other respect, Nicodemus is a reminder to us that the work of grace is not always, and you'll, I'll explain what I mean by this, an instantaneous thing upon one's first hearing of the gospel. In fact, we're really not not sure until we come to John chapter number 19 that this man is a genuine believer. There are those occasions where upon the first hearing of the call of Christ, men jump up and respond. Levi or Matthew was one like that, wasn't he? He's sitting at the receipt of custom and Christ walks by and simply says, Follow me and he immediately arises and follows Christ, publicly identifying with that grace and with the purpose of Christ. However, on the other occasion here in Nicodemus, the work of grace seems to begin here in John chapter number 3, but it ultimately takes a while to accomplish the same result in Him as it did initially in Matthew. I am interested tonight in the course by which God in grace brought Nicodemus along until he finally identified himself publicly with the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter number 19, it's the unexpected story of grace in a religious man. Let me just walk through these if I might. Uh, First of all, you'll notice with Nicodemus that there is the mounting of personal interest. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him, he said. I realize as you do, much has been written and much has been said about, much ado really has been made about why He came to the Lord Jesus and and why He came to Him at night. I personally probably don't read as much into it as maybe others do. It appears to me that He comes because He's got some interest in what's going on. And He comes at night because it seems to be the best time to catch the Lord Jesus alone. It may not seem very spiritual to you, but I believe that's probably what's going on Here in this text. Ultimately you realize that two things have happened in the life of Nicodemus. One, the the divine had been evidenced. He comes to the Lord Jesus because either he has seen or he has heard about the miraculous that has been done by the Lord Jesus. It was this that first arrested his attention. Something is happening here that we cannot explain, that we do not understand. Here is a man who comes into Israel. He's not one of the higher-ups. He's not one of the elite in the spiritual realm, but he's doing things and teaching things and all the rest that give evidence that God is doing something through him. There is a mounting of personal interest. These miracles, he says. Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles. That's the first thing that appears to grab the attention in fact, of Nicodemus. We're not given, of course, any specifics here. He does not mention exactly the miraculous that has been done. Undoubtedly, we could probably gather some information from some of the other Gospels as far as what has been done up to this point in time. But these miracles, there's something about the miraculous that has arrested his attention, that has brought him into an interest about what's going on with this man. An undeniable Evidence that God is working—a a, a well-verified evidence that God is working. They—they they realize it's not—it's not some facade. It's not a put-on. It's not a show. But these things are actually happening. These miracles are actually true and valid, brother. That—that that seemed to, to prick the interest of. Nicodemus, there was no alternative for him whenever it came to these miracles. Rabbi, we know, he said, that thou art a teacher come from God. That much, he said, we cannot deny. We cannot escape from that. He said, we know that much. The miraculous, he said, is divine evidence. That is, what has been done is not the mere work of unaided man. No man, he says, can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. The divine was evidenced. Of course, he was not wrong, was he? When he said no man can do this, he was not wrong. No unaided man can do what Christ had done. In fact, in John chapter number 5 and verse 36, the Lord Jesus pointed to this Himself. He said, but I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me, He says. The works of Christ, what He has done, the miraculous In fact, arrested his attention. He he recognized there's something about God in all of this. He was doing things that none other man did, the Bible says. In fact, John, the Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 15 and verse number 24 made reference to that. He said, if I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin, he said. That his, their sin guiltiness would not be as aggravated and not be as large uh, without the light that Christ had brought into their world. The evidence that God was at work. He did works that none, other men, that none other man did in sheer magnitude. We often, you know, we glory in the fact we say, well, Elijah did seven miracles and Elisha did 14. And we're, we're mesmerized sometimes by that. But the fact is is Christ was doing it every day. In every place that he went and doing such a, such a magnitude of them, brother and sister, that it could not be denied. Wherever he went, he, he cleansed the lepers. Wherever he went, he opened blinded eyes. He caused the, the deaf to hear. He, he caused the lame to walk. He, he cast out devils. He made fevers to flee. And he brought the dead to life again. In sheer magnitude. There's something about this that should get our attention, shouldn't it? Something about this one that should arrest our interest. He's done something that none of the men has ever done. Well, in sheer magnitude, he's done something in sheer magnitude. I know that uh, in, in saving mercy, his works were not for show. Were they? His works were simply acts of mercy mercy upon sinful humanity, mercy upon the suffering. In saving mercy, he walks through an area and forgives sins, doesn't he? Walks through an area and he delivers those whom Satan has bound. In mercy, I'm talking about his works that none other man did in sovereign might. The Bible said they were at virtue out of him and healed them all. And so, brother and sister, the divine was evidenced. God was at work and he knew it, didn't he? He knew that there was no other explanation for it. It was unexplainable outside of God, he, he recalls. He, the divine was evidenced. But in this mounting of personal interest, you'll notice the desire was entertained. When he thought about it, he thought, I've got to know what's going on. Wouldn't you want to know? <laughs> I mean, brother, if you were to put it in our society right now, it would be on every... Social media outlet the world over. If you had someone who came through genuinely, genuinely healing people, anyway, genuinely raising the life to dead, uh, of the dead to life again, genuinely, say, genuinely claiming the power to forgive sins, wouldn't you want to know what it was about? No, brother. I'd want to know the desire began to be entertained in Nicodemus there are two things I think he was really wondering whenever he came to the Lord Jesus by night first of all I think he was wondering who is this man who is this man he's not one of our number he's not educated in the religious system he doesn't have any grand title to him who is this man He's got power that we don't have. He's got abilities that we don't have. He's got grace that we don't have. Who is this man? Who is this man that has such power? Who is this man that has such grace? Who is this man? Right? Oh, brother, I think he's wondering, who is this? And I think he was wondering, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Why is he doing what he's doing? What does this mean? What is the significance of all this that he is transpiring? It's interesting to me that Nicodemus was in a place where he had obviously heard or seen some things, but he wasn't satisfied to just let it drift off or turn a blind eye to it. There's a lot that do that, isn't there? It's interesting to me that, I mean, the world has been in some ways saturated with, the truth at least of what Christ has done. They make movies about it and all the rest. And yet somehow men can, men can afterwards turn a completely blind eye to it all. They know, he, they know the miracles that he worked. They know the life that he lived. They know how he died. And yet somehow men can still turn a blind eye to it. Nicodemus was not that man. And so he would come even though it is night that he may discover the truth of the matter. What's going on here? Something is happening. Something is happening and I want to know. He knows what this is. These miracles. We might ask tonight, are you interested? <laughs> are you interested? I'll tell you this much, brother and sister, you'll never get anywhere with God if you have no interest in it. Uh, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick, Right? Those who have an interest in it. And so you find the mounting of personal interest here in this text. You'll never have grace without it. Then secondly, I want you to notice in the latter portion here that we read in John chapter number 3. I'm trying to move along. The manifestation of perfect illumination or information. Christ begins to give him truth. He comes with a desire to know what's going on. What does all of this mean? And Christ tells him exactly what it all means. The desire to know the truth was not disappointed. Christ gives him more light. He desires to know some more about this and Christ is gracious enough to tell him some more about it. Although he doesn't really deal in the same vein that Nicodemus was dealing with. He takes away the veil from his understanding. One thing I love about this text, you'll forgive me if you think this is a little childish maybe, but I've viewed this text for years this way. Nicodemus comes to the Lord Jesus and he's interested in these miracles. These miracles, these miracles, these miracles. And it is as though Christ says, if you want to talk about a miracle, Nicodemus, let's talk about a miracle. You must be born again, he says. That's a miracle, isn't it? And that's a miracle of divine grace. Let's talk about miracles, he said. You're looking at me and you're seeing the miracles and you're wondering what those miracles say about me, he says. Now let's talk about a miracle and what it says about you. That you are in such a drastic state that something so drastic has to happen to change it before you can ever see or enter into the kingdom of God. Well, brother, I'm talking about miracles. He said, let's talk about a miracle. Let's talk about a miracle of being born again. That's a miracle. It was so far beyond Nicodemus' understanding. He couldn't grasp it, could he? Well, J.C. Ryle talking about the new birth said, it is the calling into existence of a new creature with a new nature, new habits of life, new tastes, new desires, New, uh, new appetites, new judgments, new opinions, new hopes, and new fears, he said. A new birth. You see, the story of grace, any way you look at it, is a story of spiritual regeneration, isn't it? Being born again, a new birth. It's interesting that regardless of all the, the positives that we may see about Nicodemus, he was no exception to this rule. Nicodemus, you're a moral man. You're a respectful man. You're an interested man. But, he said, you're no exception. Not only are you a man who is respected, moral, and all the rest, but you are a man in need of being born again. There he is, the manifestation of perfect illumination. And so light is is shined upon his need, first of all, in verse number seven. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Light is shined upon his ignorance. In verse number 10, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things, he says? That's always an interesting, that's an interesting question. It's as though the Lord Jesus said, if you just knew your Old Testament like you're supposed to know your Old Testament, you'd realize that no man can enter into heaven as he is. He's sinful and corrupt to the core. And you think that man's going to enter into the kingdom of God? No, something drastic has to happen to that man. Something radical has to happen to a man before he can ever enter into the kingdom of God. If you understand the law, brother, you'll understand that much. And so he, he confronts his ignorance. He confronts his only hope in these verses. The hope of the new birth. Let me just be quick here. I'm trying, trying to fly through, forgive me. This new birth, it involves several things. He explains it to Nicodemus. One, it involves the womb of the Spirit, he says. You've experienced a natural birth, he said. But, he said, this is a birth by the Holy Ghost, he says, This is not some natural level, he said. This is not something you can learn in school and get it, he knows. They don't teach this down at seminary, he said. This is what the Holy Ghost does in someone's heart and life. A new birth. You must be born of the Spirit, he says, in verse number 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, he says. Verse number 8 again, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit, he knows. This is a work of the Holy Ghost. You cannot regenerate yourself. You cannot bring yourself into everlasting life. You cannot bring real, genuine, spiritual life to yourself. It's the work of the Spirit of God. We are put in the womb, so to speak, of the Spirit of God, and He is the one that grants us real life in the sight of God. You see, the privileges of the Jewish religion, He enjoyed by being born of the seed of Abraham after the flesh. But to possess the privileges of Christ's kingdom, a man must be born by the Holy Ghost. To enter into that one and to see that one, you must have the work of the divine spirit. You can't regenerate yourself. It is the work of the divine spirit. You see, grace is something that comes from outside of yourself. Huh? It's not just us trying to be our best selves. We're trying to live our best life now. Forgive the reference. It is the work of the Holy Ghost, isn't it? It is His work with us not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing, he said, of the Holy Ghost, he says. It was the Holy Ghost who brought us into everlasting life. It's not our own supposed goodness. It's not our own good works. These cannot lift the condemnation from off of us and bring us into everlasting life. It takes a work of the Spirit of God to do that. And so he said it involves the womb of the Spirit. It involves the work of the Savior, he knows. Verse 13 and 14. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, he knows. It involves the work of the Savior. Two things he speaks of. One is coming down from heaven. And let's just know, brother, he was in heaven before he was here. Huh? Oh, yes. Let's just know something about who he is. But then he talks about his being lifted up, doesn't he? John would later say this, this language he uses to signify what death he would die. He's being lifted up. And it is on this basis, Christ said, that God grants repentance the life. It is on this basis, the work of Jesus Christ and the work, the ministry of the Spirit applying the work of Jesus Christ to the sinful heart on this basis, the basis of satisfied law, the basis of perfect justice, the basis of complete atonement made. It is on this basis that we are brought into eternal life. The work of the Savior, it involves the wealth or way of grace. Notice verse 15, he said that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Like a precious gift, this life comes to us. Like a gift from God coming down from above. We sing born of the Spirit with life from above. But it comes to us as a gift from the gracious hands of God. Not as something to be earned, but as something to be embraced. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. All of His religion is naught. All of His prestige is fleeting without this saving grace. The wealth of grace it involves, but it involves the warmth of God. For God so loved the world, He said, that He gave His only begotten Son. You say, how can we experience this through the love of God? It is the fruit of God's love for a sinning world, isn't it? in is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is the love of God that brought it to pass. Listen, sinner, God doesn't hate you. That's the fact, isn't it? He doesn't hate you. If he'd have hated you, he'd have left us to ourselves and abandoned us to our own ruin. He didn't come to rub it in. He came to rub it out, didn't he? The warmth of God. It is this grace that Nicodemus must have. And so the manifestation of perfect Christ walks him through what he really needs, the miracle that he should be interested in. My goodness, brother. Forgive me, I'll I'll fly through the rest. Not only is there the mounting of personal interest, the manifestation of perfect illumination, but over in chapter number 7, there is the move of private inclination. You can see that something is working in Nicodemus in John 7. Evidently, he's not quite ready to come on out and say, Hey, you know, I I believe in the Lord Jesus, but something is working. After 18 months... Suddenly, Nicodemus begins to show a tendency, doesn't he? Begins to show a leaning. They're talking about how, how the Lord Jesus is, and, and he says, I've got to say something here. Uh, let, me, let me say a word in his behalf. It's so strange that he does this here in John chapter number 7. Notice it's a, it's a small word, but at least he, you can tell he's giving some thought to some things, isn't he? giving some thought to some things. He he dares now to say something on the behalf of the Lord. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh does. Just a little word, but it's better than nothing. Right? We entertain things like this as parents. We look for our children to come to know Christ and we're looking for indications that somehow something is there working. Truth is becoming manifest. Truth is taking hold in their hearts somewhere. Grace is working. Right? It's almost what we see here in Nicodemus. You see some grace working. He, he doesn't want to say a lot, but he's got something to say. It was a move of private inclination. And it's strange that he does it where he does it. He doesn't come to church and say, can I say a word? He says it among his enemies. doesn't. he? I don't know, brother. I I'm Better than most of us would do now. <laughs> he's not simply... Caught up in popular sentiment because the popular sentiment where he was was not what he was thinking. Right? He wasn't just saying what everybody else was saying because everybody else was saying something totally different than what he was saying. Not just caught up in a movement because the movement of everybody, all of his buddies and all the rest were in the opposite direction. And yet something was in his heart that was not working in theirs. I read the testimony of a man named Tom Cantor. He's the founder of Scantabody's Laboratories in California. Anyway, he was raised as an Orthodox Jew. His grandfather was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. He said in his testimony that he was taught that a Jew could never be a Christian. And that he was taught that all Gentiles were either Muslims or Christians. He began to work out in the world some and He was working with Gentiles, and so he assumed, okay, these fellows aren't Muslims, they must be Christian." He said that he uh, got in a really low spot, and he picked up a New Testament for the first time in his life and began to read. First time he'd ever read a New Testament, read about the Lord Jesus and the Gospels. So he, he decided in himself... All right, I'm going to see if what I was taught was true. He went to work. He said that the boy, the fellows he worked with, he worked with three men. He said I, I, they all had mistresses, and he said I'm going to run a little test here. And, and so one day he called them, and they was all talking about their mistresses and all the rest. And and he said he walked up to them and said, "Sounds to me like you fellows need Jesus Christ." And he said he found out real quick that not all Gentiles were Christian. <laughs> said he went to eat a meal with his aunt and uncle and he said his uncle was always bothering his aunt because uh, over, over Christianity and they were eating a meal, eating the Passover. And he said his uncle hollered in from the living room to his wife, to, to, to his uncle's wife. And, and he said, Do you know, Christians believe that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the Passover. So all these things working, you know, with him. All these things working in his heart. Went over to the Jewish temple. He was having great concerns about Jesus Christ. Anyway, whether he was truly the Messiah. Went over to the Jewish temple and heard the lecture anyway that was given. So he approached the, the rabbi afterwards and said, Can I talk to you? And the rabbi said, Sure, you can talk with me. And he said, He took him to the side and he said, he said what's, what's your issue? And he said, he said I'll tell you. He said, I, I think I believe that Jesus is the Christ. <laughs> And he was informed very quickly that if he ever mentioned the name of Jesus ever again, he would not be allowed back in the temple. But there was something working, wasn't there? Something working. A move of private inclination, you see. In John chapter number 19, and I'll close very quickly here. John chapter number 19, there's a moment of public identification. Comes out at last, after three years from their initial conversation, of course, we'd have tried to drag him to the altar in John chapter three, wouldn't we christ just Christ just left him with it, didn't he? I wonder why we don't use some of that wisdom in our time, but i mean i'm not I'm not you know saying that urgency is bad, sometimes you just left have to let grace have its perfect work, don't you, huh. John chapter number 19, three years later, we find Nicodemus who is at last seemingly ready to take his portion with Christ. There's a couple of things here I think are of great interest. One, he, there is another man who seems to be able to help him. He's got the same struggles that Nicodemus has Joseph of Arimathea. He's got struggles of his own, but both of them realize we're, 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 we're in that direct, We're believing. We believe. We believe, and he may may have had a hard time by himself, but he finds another believer that's like him, and he helps him onward, doesn't he? To come out and publicly identify with Christ. But notice this. When he came in John 3, it was all about the miracles. But the miracles weren't enough to get him to identify with Jesus Christ. It was when he died, wasn't it? It was his death, his death that brought him to this point. Of course, the Lord spoke about it in John chapter number 3. But he he doesn't come to identify with the miracle worker, does he? He doesn't come to identify, if you will, with the teacher, the the rabbi that he talked about in John 3. He comes to identify with the dying one. Doesn't he? Huh? And it is that that brings him out. I'm going to tell you, let me just tell you something. Let me tell you something. If the death of Jesus Christ does not get you to cling to him with all tenacity, nothing will. Nothing will. It is his sacrifice for our sins, it is his dying in our stead, it is his being lifted up on our behalf. That is what binds our heart to him, isn't it? That is what brings us to say, I am with Him. I am with Him. Regardless of come what may, I am with Him. It is that, isn't it? It's an unexpected story of grace in a religious man. Let me just give you a few points of application here if I might and I'll be finished. One, be thankful for the fruit which springs immediately. Sometimes it happens that way, doesn't it? Like Matthew and like some others, you know, in the scripture we read about, first time they hear the gospel, they embrace it. Thank God for that. But let me say this, be patient for the fruit which does not. Huh? We're liable to write somebody off and let grace work. Grace will work. Be diligent, because grace does have its good work, doesn't it? Uh, it may take three years. It may take longer. Put the truth out there and watch grace work in a man's heart. And then be mindful that grace does not always accomplish its good work in the human heart in the same way. Right? We expect everybody just to jump up like we do. Right? It doesn't always work the same way. But it brought the same conclusion to them, didn't it? And so be mindful of that. But be bold. Your boldness may incite others like Joseph Arimathea who decided, you know, the time has come. I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm identifying with him publicly, unashamedly, coming forward. Anyway, be bold because your boldness may incite others to be bold as well, right? Amen. Brother Kevin, you come.